Over the past couple of months, pretty much all of my focus has been building the view model package, which is a view package that allows you to work with backends really easily. So you know how you've got things that, um, you, you know how you've got these libraries that sort of help you work with backends sometimes. So you've got something like Firebase or Superbase. This goes one step further and tries to stitch those backend, um, those backends to the front end with Vue.js. So things like having a loading state, uh, how those records get inserted into the store. Basically a whole bunch of assumptions are being made about that kind of thing so that you can really uh, really marry your front end to the back end. That's what I've been working on. And throughout this process, I've come up with uh, a bit of a methodology for building packages. And this has been great because I've done a few packages in the past, but this is the first time I've built one that is particularly compli you know, complicated and requires a lot of strategy uh, rather than just kind of going at it head on. Uh, kind of, I mean, ViewAuth was a little bit like this as well. But yeah, this has kind of been one of those projects where you don't have a choice but to think things through. Otherwise, you end up with a massive, you know, technical depth spaghetti code mess. <laughs> so I thought I'd do this podcast going through some of those things. I've written them down. I've written down my steps and there's eight of them in total. The first one is, so these are steps. These aren't just pieces of advice. These are things that are followed uh, in order. And the first one is write out usage examples while maintaining a doc for when ideas fall into your head. And what I mean is usually what I'll use is something called um, Markdown MD. Oh, I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, some Hack MD, that's what it's called. Hack MD to write down usage examples. So basically, rather than writing, for example, a TypeScript file for what everything's going to look like, I'll actually write down what it looks like to use my package before it's even been built yet. So for example, really basic example, let's just say you've got an indexer. Uh, so I have a composable called use indexer. And the first thing I pass through to that would be, for example, a post model. Um, and then I might say, for example, assign that to an er a variable called you, uh, posts indexer. And then the next line would just be posts indexer.indexing.value. You know, that might be a way to demonstrate the API or better still, maybe like a quasar button with colon loading equal to postindexr.indexing.value. Basically just writing out example after example after example of how this thing is going to be used. Um, and the really cool thing about this is it gets you to think about the API first. Like I used to call this docs-driven development where you know you start with your documentation. Um, rather, it's kind of a joke because, you know, we got all these different acronyms like test-driven development, um, BDD, I kind of remember what that's called, maybe business-driven. Anyway, it <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, th the point is it forces you to think of the API and try and create a beautiful API first and prioritizes the API uh, early on in the project. And I found this to be particularly useful. And it means that when you take breaks, you're thinking about the API. So if you go have a nap, the API is in your head, not how to solve the problem. First, it's how do I make this look as beautiful as possible, regardless of how it gets implemented. Because one thing I've learned in the tech world is the answer is almost always yes, you can do it. 
So if you build an API that is as beautiful as possible, it's almost always true that you can then reverse engineer that and actually build the thing. So often we end up with these complex APIs because we think to ourselves, well, it has to be done this way and I did it this way because of X, Y, Z and it was easier to do it this way. But if you take a step back and you start with how do I make this look beautiful first, then the rest just becomes... Um, the rest just becomes a challenge to then implement that, which is almost always possible. At least that's what I found. Uh, and the second half of this was, um, so it was write out usage examples while maintaining a doc for when ideas fall into your head. So what inevitably happens is whilst you're building out these examples, little ideas fall into your head, which is why I usually just have an Obsidian doc and I'll go to that Obsidian doc and just dump all my ideas in there. And later on, I might organize those, but especially early on in the project, sometimes your brain goes too fast for writing out examples. Often an example can take like half an hour to write, just you know, a few lines of code because you're noodling with it and trying to find the perfect API for what you're trying to build. And so um, often though, when you're in the middle of that, you have all these ideas, but you're trying to focus on this one thing. So then as I'm building out those um, usage examples, I wanna have a place where I can just go blah and dump these ideas. Or when I'm going for a walk, I wanna be able to quickly run home and then just type out some ideas and have it all in one place. Okay, we got eight of these and that was just one, but I think that's one of the most important ones. So the second one is build the foundation. So the second step, build the foundation, um, including your build code, so the build command, and I use unbuild for that which is a really, really cool tool that just makes it really easy to build um, specifically TypeScript projects and projects that use view components. So one, the build code. Two, setting up a monorepo. I almost always do um, packages in monorepos now because I wanna have the docs and often some like supporting packages end up being built. And I want it to be really easy to build supporting packages. So for example, um, view model has got a core package but it's also got implementations uh, and it's also got a supporting package for sample data. And, you know, rather than having different repos for this, I'm just make monorepos from the beginning now so that my docs and my, um, you know, any, anything else just can sit in there. So the third thing is the view plugin. Uh, so just making sure that that's set up so that you can, you know, easily install the plugin. I just like to get that code out of the way from the beginning. The fourth thing is composables for retrieving the config. So it's really important for me when I'm building packages to have a really um, well thought, uh, well implemented hierarchy for configuration. Um, and by that I mean, I wanna be able to configure things at the highest level. So kind of at like a global level. Uh, then I wanna be able to configure things at a driver level. And then I wanna be able to configure things at a usage level. So for example, let's just say I've got a use index and it's got an immediate option. So I can do it at a usage level. So I can say use index and then pass through immediate true. And that basically just means that composable is immediately going to call the index command. So you don't have to do it manually. That's just a cool little thing that view model has. Um, stole that idea from view use. <laughs> I stole a lot of ideas from view use. They got some amazing ideas. Um, but that's kind of the bottom of the configuration hierarchy uh, when you're actually using the thing. And then one level up from that would be at a driver level. So let's just say I've got two drivers. I've got 
a Laravel backend, and I've also got a Dataverse backend, which you probably wouldn't do very often, but you know, let's just say I've got two drivers. You need to be able to handle those situations in case they do come up. Uh, then you can do it at a driver level. So I can say at a driver level, immediate is equal to true, meaning every single time I use the use index composable, immediate is true unless I state otherwise. All right, so you can do it at a usage level or you can do it at a driver level or you can do it at a global level. So basically saying for every single um, use index composable, uh, no matter what the driver is, I want immediate to equal true. And so I wanna make sure that I'm thinking about that from the beginning. And if we think about that from the beginning, then uh, it's easier um, to get these problems solved upfront because I've always found that it's a little bit harder to create that sort of hierarchy of configuration later on. So I try to kind of get that infrastructure, get that architecture in from the beginning. Okay, so the fifth thing is, if more than one driver is available, so if you're able, if you're building a package that can have more than one driver, building composables for retrieving the correct driver. And what I mean by that is, for use indexer, what um, the way I build this is you can have multiple drivers. So it could be a use indexer for a Laravel backend. It could be a use indexer for a Dataverse backend, for a local storage backend. Basically, the backend is agnostic. For that reason, um, you can have multiple drivers. And so if you're building a package that can have multiple drivers, which I recommend you do if it makes sense for your package, it's, um, it's a really great way to develop. It creates flexibility and it makes it um, more likely that you can build a community around your package because everyone can create their own implementations. Um, Laravel is a classic example of this. Uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so if there's one, more than one driver available, um, so use indexer can have multiple drivers. And so therefore, when you say use indexer, uh, when you're using that composable, it has to decide on which driver to use. So what I like to do, and what you might want to do in your packages too, is set a default driver. So if I say default is equal to Dataverse, then by default, let's just say I've got three drivers, it's going to pull out the Dataverse driver. But then I also wanna be able to say use indexer and then pass through a string as the first parameter, which is the driver that I want to use. So I can either say use indexer and then just start using it. And by default, that'll pull out Dataverse. Or I can say use indexer, pass through the string Laravel as the first parameter. And then it's going to use the Laravel driver instead behind the scenes. So it just, it takes a little bit of thinking to do that and a little bit of extra planning and a bit of work to build in that architecture. And I want that built from the beginning. Uh, it just makes it easier um, for me to build my application going forward. So there's a lot of foundation. So they're the first two things. Number one, write out usage examples while maintaining a doc for when ideas fall into your head. Number two, build the foundation. And I'll go through those um, steps one more time just so they're kind of front of mind. Build uh, the build code. So for example, using unbuild, setting up a monorepo with something like NPM or Yarn or whatever you're using. The view plugin, composables for retrieving the config. And if there's more than one driver available, composables for retrieving the correct driver. Okay, once I've got all that in place, if applicable, I then wanna create sample data. 
So the sample data might be, for example, for view model, we've got a bunch of posts, a bunch of users, comments, uh, albums with photos, just kind of stuff like that, and all the relationships for all that data. Uh, and it just makes it so much easier to develop. I spent about two or three hours just creating that sample data. Um, and honestly, in total, it's probably ended up being like four hours. And oh my goodness, I cannot tell you, kind of begin to tell you how much time that has saved me and how useful it's been to have that sample data ready to go in whatever scenario I need it. Really great for testing. And it's actually in the documentation now. So I've been building the documentation over the past few days. And it's really cool because users can use that sample data in the docs. So in my documentation, I've got REPLs and you can open up a REPL that's got like a Visual Studio Code editor. It's using the Monaco editor, which is what VS Code's built on. Uh, and all the sample data just gets inserted and the user is ready to just play around with the package. Uh, it's, it's And it's really great. So if they're building something... Um, so if they just want to like play around and learn the package, they can also use this sample data repository. So I've built it into its own repository where they can then just pull in the models and start um, playing around and either inserting the data or having their own you know, creation form for creating data. It's really, really helpful uh, to have a good uh, set of sample data. So the next thing is set up vTest. VTest, VTest, however you say it. Uh, and if applicable, Cypress. So if you're building a component library, I like to use Cypress for that. Uh, if I'm building a composable library and it's only for composables, then I'll use VTest for that. Um, and component libraries, often you'll use Cypress and VTest because often a component library also has composables and it's just easier to test composables using VTest. Um, but it's easier to test components, at least in my opinion, using something like Cypress. So I'll get all of those set up. Then I'm ready to actually start developing. And when it comes to the development phase, um, I switch between these three things. Number one is writing test names. So usually I'll be looking at uh, all that stuff from step one where we created usage examples and I'll kind of switch between that document and then writing um, the names of the test. So not the test itself, just kind of like doing a bit of a brain dump on the names of tests of things that I need to cover. And I don't want to go overboard with this. I might write like five or 10 tests to get myself started. Um, and then the second thing is writing the tests themselves. All right. And I'm kind of like tic-tacking back and forth between this. I might write five or 10 tests names, like just the, what they're called, like use indexer works. You, you probably want a better test name than that. But, you know, use indexer can retrieve records after indexing or something like that. Um, so I might have four or five of them and then I'll write the tests for all of those. And then I might write some more test names and then I'll write, write, write a few more tests. And then I might be like, okay, I feel like I'm ready to actually write some code to pass some of these tests now. So it's tic-tacking back and forth between those three things, three things, writing test names, writing the tests themselves, and then writing the code that passed those tests. Now I'm sure there's probably some purists out there that might say, for example, it should be one thing at a time, write the name of it, write the test, write the code that passes it. I, I don't like coding in this way. I like to have a little bit of freedom. Uh, you know, th th to me, this is the best balance of freedom and constraint. I like having that constraint of doing things via tests. I like having that constraint of um, not writing too many test names and not writing too many tests. You can't write all of the tests in your application and then try and pass them all 
because you just don't have the foresight at that point. And so for me, it's kind of tic-tacking back and forth and creating my own insights around this. So somebody that's really, really good at writing APIs in their head and just having the whole thing built before they even write a line of code, maybe they can write like 50 tests and then and then concentrate on the code that passes all of them. I can't even fathom being able to do that. And so for me, it's writing maybe like, you know, four or five tests at a time and then going into writing tests that pass. And then often it'll just be one, it'll be, you know, write a test, pass it, write a test, pass it. It depends on the thing that I'm doing at the time. So that's uh, that was the next thing, switching between different tests, uh, those three things, writing the test name, writing the test, and then writing the code that passes that test. So I'm gonna do a quick recap, writing out usage examples while maintaining a doc for ideas that fall in your head, building the foundation, if applicable, creating sample data, setting up VTest, and then switching between those three things where you're actually writing tests and building the code. Now, the next thing, uh, when all of that's done and your package is done, which you know usually takes some time, that's the crux of it. That, that's switching between tests and writing the code. That's the crux of actually building the package. When that's all done, then it's creating the release code. And I use Bump for this. So it's B-U-M-P-P. I believe that's uh, written by Anthony Fu. Love Anthony Fu. He, if I see anything that he's built, chances are I can use it in my workflow. He just he builds so many useful things. Uh, and yeah, so for creating the release code, I'll use something like Bump, which just makes it really easy to run a command that it does like some stuff with Git, doing tags, um, automatically asking you what version it is that you wanna do a bump for, and then automatically doing like um, a, a PNPM published, just handles all of that crap for you behind the scenes, it's wonderful. So the next step is creating the release code, that's usually not too difficult with a lot of the tools we have these days. And the last step is setting up VPress and writing the docs. So I use VPress for my docs and chances are if you're writing a Vue um, package, you're using either VuePress or VPress. They're both wonderful. I've actually switched back and forth between the two. I could not tell you which one I prefer. They're both really, really great tools. And by the way, you can use Vite when you're using VuePress. So VuePress also supports Vite. Um, they're very, very similar packages. Uh, so I'd, with setting up VPress, I usually like to use um, like a glob pattern to automatically set up my left menu. And I've got some basic scripts that I do there to um, you know set that up. So I'll spend like half an hour to an hour setting that up and making it really nice and getting, um, that was a lie. It usually ends up being two or three hours. Somehow I find new things to try and build into it. <laughs> uh, in fact, recently, my most recent docs, it probably took me two days just to get the VPress documentation up and running the way I wanted it because I was doing all this fancy stuff like getting REPLs in there, um, getting Quasar working with it, uh, getting Quasar working in the examples, creating like really nice components for example code so I can easily like paste it in there and then have it show that there's just so many, you know, bits and pieces. Uh, so that's the last one. And one thing I found with this last step, and I just did a tweet about this, is it's amazing how many problems you discover when you're building something with VPress, uh, or when you're specifically writing out the documentation. Because there's so many things, especially when you're building your code using like a TDD approach, 
there's all these tiny things that your tests don't catch. I've got to say, it is remarkable how accurate the final product was to what I wanted using a TDD approach. It's it was a really cool feeling to finally then put it into the documentation because I use real world examples in the docs so that you can actually see and play with the examples in the docs. Um, and it is amazing how much of it actually works. When you're using TypeScript and when you're using uh, TDD, it's really, really cool to spend months building something, be wondering, oh my goodness, I don't even know if this works. You know, I might do a few tests here and there with real world examples, but for the most part, I'm like, I don't know. I just got to trust this works based on the tests. But then you take that code and you actually use it. It is the most amazing feeling of just like hard work um, and then seeing the fruition of that hard work all at once as you build the docs. It's so cool. But then, of course, when you use the thing in the real world, you realize that there's, you know, little logical flaws you had in your tests and things that you didn't quite write correctly. So, uh, this is this then becomes like this extra little cycle in here, which is work on the docs and then go back to that step of writing test names, writing tests, and then writing the code that passes those tests. So it's like write docs, um, you know, come across problems, fix those problems, write the doc. Like one thing that I got wrong, I, I cannot, I still cannot believe this is um, nested filters weren't working in view model. So they were working with include. So when you included related data, all of the filtering was working. The nested filters would work. But nested filters, which is just basic, basic functionality, somehow I managed to miss that. Somehow I managed to accidentally forget to implement it or forget to write tests for it as well, um, which is just mind-boggling to me. And then I got to that part in the docs, and I'm like, oh, this is one of my favorite features, the fact that you can do all this nested filtering and you can basically go as far as you want with your nested filtering. You can do and or operators with your nested filters. And it didn't work. And I'm like, oh, yeah, hang on, what's going on here? So I go to find the test. That's the first thing I do when it doesn't work. I'm like, okay, where's the test? Let's see, what was, is there a logical flaw in my test? And then I realized I didn't even write the test for it. And so I had to sort of go back and implement that feature, which turned out to be a pretty difficult feature. So <laughs> thank goodness, you know, I did this approach of actually building the documentation with examples for everything. And so with that last, I kind of want to drill that home with this last point, which is set up vpress and write docs. Um, if you create usage examples and you're religious about that, and you make sure that every single thing that you cover in the docs um, and you make sure you cover everything in the docs. I like to go through my TypeScripted files for anything that is the surface of my API um, and go through them one at a time. And in an Obsidian doc, I'll just be like, okay, I need to cover that, need to cover that, need to cover that. Go through every single one of them and then also write down, I need an example for that. I need an example for that. So I've also got a, a doc a list of examples that I need to create. And the cool thing about this is you can start doing chunking. You can then go, okay, I'm going to do five of these examples because I'm kind of in example mode. And often you'll copy paste the previous examples and make changes. So it's more efficient to just like go through the examples first and then write the docs for it. And then I'll sort of tic-tac back and forth between those two things. So then you can write, you know, really solid docs with really nice examples um, in it. Uh, yeah. So that's my process. I'm gonna go through it all one more time. It's not eight steps, it's seven steps. For some reason, my numbering system didn't work properly on my uh, computer. <laughs> anyway, number one, 
write out usage examples while maintaining a doc for when ideas fall into your head. Two, build the foundation. And that includes the build code, which is you know using something like unbuild, setting up the monorepo using something like PNPM, uh, or you might be using more advanced tools, I don't know. Uh, making sure the view plugin is working, composables for retrieving the config, and if more than one driver is available, composables for retrieving the correct driver. Two, if applicable, creating sample data. Three, set up vtest, and if applicable, something like uh, Cypress. Four, switch between writing test names, writing tests, writing code that passes the test. Five, I think it's five, I'm getting confused by this numbering system. Create the release code using something like bump, B-U-M-P-P. And then six, set up vpress and write uh, your docs using vpress. And you could almost add another step there, which is to kind of like go back to writing the code as you go through the docs and you discover a lot of the problems that you come across along the way. But anyway, that'll do for this podcast. Hope you enjoyed listening to it, listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it for you. I really love doing these podcasts. I think I say that at the end of every single one, but I always surprise myself at how enjoyable they are and how great it is to have a place where I can share more complex ideas. The kind of podcasts I listen to, I feel like they, um, at least for me, I, I think we need both. Um, there's too many dumbed down podcasts. And th- you know what? That's not fair wording either. Um, basically, podcasts that are trying to just be for beginners. And when I was starting out as a web developer, I actually wanted to listen to the advanced podcast. I wanted to listen to the stuff that I didn't know anything about. I wanted to go home after a walk listening to a podcast with, you know, three or four things that I wanted to look up because it's stuff that I didn't understand. I wanted to dig into complicated concepts. Um, you know, I wish somebody got me thinking about, uh, you know, config merging earlier on in my career because it has just been so insanely helpful. And it's it's been, it's funny because it's such a benign thing, but config merging has been an absolute game changer for me. And it's funny the things I hear people say, quote unquote, game changer about um, because my game changer thing is something just so silly. The fact that you can merge configs together and use that concept, you know, and get that concept to permeate your code. And if you do that, you've got this incredible power that you can wield over your code. Uh, you know, one of my favorite ways to develop uh, now, and, and I'm still trying to master this and trying to figure out the right tooling around this. We're going to go on a little tangent here. Um, guys and gals, so stay with me or end the podcast if you'd rather. <laughs> um, one of the th- things that I love to do is creating a configuration object at three different levels. So depending on the application, but one of the projects I'm working on has a tenant level, an org level, and then a user level. Uh, and to me, you can almost kind of think of them as the same thing. When you log in, you're logging in as a tenant and as an organization and as a user. So even though from a coding perspective, you're only really logging in as a user, I kind of think of it as logging in as a tenant org and user because that user could be using a different org. So it could be um, tenant A, org A, user A, tenant A, org B, user A. So you know, you're know kind of logging in in three different ways. And I like to have a config file on all three of these levels 
that follow a JSON schema. And that JSON schema is what's used to sort of build that config and constrain that config. And so at a tenant level, uh, you might say, for example, the brand color for this application is green. And then at an org level, you might say the brand color is red. And then when that user logs in, the brand color is red because it sort of merges from the top down, this kind of logical merging. And if you start taking this concept and using it more and more in your applications, you can do some really, you can get some phenomenal flexibility, turning features on and off for users, showing and hiding applications depending on the user that's logged in. You know, maybe uh, one tenant has got application A available to them, and then at a org level, they have application B and C available to them, and then at a user level, they've got application D available to them. And so, you know, it just creates this incredible flexibility for the user experience uh, based on that configuration, you know, based on what the configuration looks like as it gets merged in. I just think it is such a brilliant concept and you can use it in so many different ways, not just like brand colors, you can use it for stuff like, you know, debounces. Maybe you know that people within a certain organization are always out in the sticks and so you want them to have a debouncer that is much, much higher. Um, and, you know, actually one thing I didn't mention is I have another merge property which I call foundation at the very top. And this is a hard-coded merge property. So what you can do is say uh, when you if somebody logs in and they've got no tenant config, no org config, no user config, they might still have a debouncer because at the very top of that hierarchy is the foundation config. And that foundation config will have defaults like what is the debouncer default? What is the brand color default? It's just, it is such a cool, cool concept and takes a little bit of effort to implement. Well, to implement, right. It's actually easy to implement because you literally just merge all those configs together um, and then you have this final config. Uh, but there's this, but if you can go um, one step further and validate that as well. And one thing I do now is I've um, got a component that automatically generates a form based on a JSON schema. And because that JSON schema um, is being, you know, generated, so since this form is based on the JSON schema for those merged objects, it means that you can then create a form on the front end that um, admins can use to configure tenants and to configure organizations and to configure users to very easily add things and remove, you know, functionality. And to create that form, you literally just update the JSON schema. It's, it's really freaking cool. Um, I need to keep working on this idea and fleshing it out. And then I'd love to do a series on it eventually. But I'm way, way away from that because there's so many other little bits and pieces I'd need to build, like open source tooling around that before I'd be, feel comfortable sharing that with the community. I'm always a little bit worried to share things too early with communities because um, you know it's, it's good to build things open source um, in the wild, but if you release that uh, too early on and you create a feeling that, you know, th this can be used in the wild, then people can often use that in the wild and then it breaks and then, you know, you're the one whose door they're knocking on. And so you've got to make sure that I've done this in the past with packages where um, I built something that wasn't quite ready enough and I wasn't committed to working, you know, to sustaining that package long term. And so you're going to make sure you're really committed to that package and you gotta make sure that when it's released, you have a plan for supporting that in the future. So that's one thing that I need to work on. Um, 
And that's why I'm building a view model and trying to figure out the projects that I want to build that I'm going to be using on a day-to-day basis. And if they're very much involved in my workflow, then it's much easier to support because I know that I'm not just supporting it for myself. I'm supporting it for everyone else. Okay, that's enough talking for now. (laughs) We're over half an hour now, but you know what? I I don't mind. These podcasts can go as long as they need to go. So I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed recording it for you. And... Yeah, keep following for more. And remember, there is truly nothing you can't build.